Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Let's talk about the book of Romans. It's actually a letter from Paul to the believers in Rome. This book represents Paul's most carefully considered and theologically important writing. It is written near the end of his ministry, so it shows the full development of his theological thinking over the years since his conversion on the Damascus Road. The letter to the Romans has had a large influence on both the Protestant Reformation as well as John Wesley because of this doctrine of justification by faith that we hear in it. He writes to a church that he did not found, that he has never visited, so they don't know him. He lays out this detailed theological argument as a way of introduction. Here is who I am. Here is what I'm doing. Here is what I believe and how I operate. It has been said that Hebrews is the theological textbook for Jews and that Romans is the theological textbook for Gentiles. But the church in Rome consisted of both Jewish and Gentile believers. Um, we believe perhaps as much as roughly 50-50 in that church. And Paul is a Jewish apostle to the Gentiles who is wrestling with the fate of Israel. If they are unbelieving, what what ultimately happens to Israel? And what about those promises that God made to them? Ultimately, he reaches that conclusion in chapter 11, verse 26. Um, we'll get there. In chapter 1, he gives a long introduction. He calls himself a servant or a slave, literally, showing his humility and his commitment. He talks about being called. Um, that's a divine appointment. And then he says he is set apart. That's what we call ordained, is a setting apart. So he shows that he's both been called by God and approved by other disciples. He also says that the Messiah exceeded messianic expectations by not only being a descendant of David, doing those kinds of things, but, but by also being the Son of God. In verses 8 through 17 of chapter 1, we have a prayer of thanksgiving. John Wesley particularly looked at verse 8, and he says, All gifts of God pass through Christ to us, and all of our petitions and thanksgivings pass through Christ to God. In verses 16 and 17, we see the theme of the entire letter, that God saves all the same way. In verses 18 through 32, Paul, like many other Jews of his day, links Gentile idolatry and sexual misconduct together. And he says there's no excuse for either of those. There's enough evidence in all of creation to, to know that God exists. There's also enough in your own conscience to know that unrestrained sexual urges are wrong. And ignoring that knowledge 
ignoring those realizations deafens us to God's voice. The most terrible judgment we can receive is to be left to ourselves. In chapter 2, Paul goes on to say that God is impartial. Jews are also under the power of sin, not just Gentiles. And here, as elsewhere in his letters, he's going to use a critical discourse style called a diatribe. He's going to answer objections, in this case from an imaginary opponent, and you can spot his use of this tactic by emphatic phrases. Here in this letter, he's going to say, by no means. So he's answering things someone else, an opponent might have said, by by no means. Let me give you the answer to that. We find out in verse 17 that this imaginary opponent is a Jew. He is answering common Jewish attitudes toward Jews and Gentiles. In verse 4, I love that he says, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And then in verse 11, he affirms that there's no partiality. God has no favorite children. He does have closer relationships with some children because we seek it, we create it, we spend more time with Him. But there's never more love. He loves all of His children the same. These passages here do not undermine justification by faith. They simply affirm what Jesus taught us throughout his ministry about the hypocrisy of outward shows of religion that are not substantiated by the way we behave. Obedience matters. Our actions matter. We cannot disconnect our head from our heart and from our hands. Paul does believe that there is an advantage to being a Jew, and that is the history of this relationship with God that they have. But that history of relationship with God also brings a responsibility to know better, to do better, and to share more with the other cultures, communities, and countries around them. In chapter 3, Paul affirms that all people, Jews and Gentiles, are under the power of sin. And that means that apart from Jesus Christ, people are incapable of not sinning. We need Jesus Christ to release us from the power of sin over us, and we need the Holy Spirit within us to empower us not to sin. The natural state of created human beings is a sinful nature. We have a bent to sinning. The natural state of a Christian is to resist sin, to avoid sin. Both Paul and John Wesley regard sin as an unnatural state for Christians. It puts us at odds with Jesus' nature, which is growing in us. It is contrary to the Holy Spirit at work within us. Sin should be uncomfortable to us. It should put us at dis-ease, an unnatural state for us. In verses 9 through 19 of chapter 2, Paul quotes a lot of scripture. And he, he, it's a compilation of Old Testament passages to describe the state of humanity when we are left to ourselves. Verses 21 through 31 put forth Paul's concluding statements to his opening argument. And here we find atonement theology. That being that the righteousness of God, which includes the faithfulness and the justice of God, are all part of his righteousness, 
but the righteousness of God has been fully and finally shown in Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ provided the final sacrifice for sin. And in this atonement idea, he has in mind the Jewish sacrificial system. Now, there are many scholars today, biblical scholars, who are not fond of atonement theory. Um, They don't like this idea of death and having to die for sin. But Paul certainly subscribes to an atonement theology, as do other biblical writers. Um, He states very clearly that justification is a divine gift. We receive it. We don't achieve it. Um, It's something we cannot do for ourselves. This, for Paul, is not a rejection of the law. It is a fulfillment of the law. The law had a deeper purpose and a meaning. And the goal of it was to point to Jesus Christ, to the need for a Redeemer, to to the need for something more than sacrifices. So that old system has passed away We now appeal to Jesus and not to um, sacrifices for our righteousness. In our day and time, we would not appeal to sacrifices, literal sacrifices of animals, but we sometimes do fall victim to um, appealing to sacrifices that we make. Um, We bargain with God. I remember the story of a woman who tried to bargain with God by saying, if you'll make my husband go to church with me, I'll keep my church dress on all day on Sunday. Um, So she felt like her sacrifice would be what finally moved God to act on her behalf. To um, That kind of bargaining is just not part of our faith. God loves us and wants to be active on our behalf to do good things for us. We don't have to, to bargain. We appeal to Christ. In Christ, we are accepted and loved. And we may have those conversations with with God, but not in a bargaining, I'll sacrifice if you'll do for me way. In chapter 4, to demonstrate the deeper purpose of the law, Paul reaches back to Abraham. Abraham was prior to the law. Abraham is prior to the sign of circumcision. Um, Abraham was accepted because of his faith in God. Abraham was accounted righteousness. Um, That's a bookkeeping term. It was reckoned unto him. He's not perfectly righteous, but because of his faith, God is going to add to the way he looks at him as righteous. And that's what happens to us. When we appeal to Jesus Christ, Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us, accounted to us, reckoned to us. It's put in our column, even though it hasn't previously belonged to us and does not yet belong to us because that's when the Holy Spirit goes to work to try to make us more righteous. The same reckoning of righteousness that was given to Abraham is available to us because of Jesus, because of his death and resurrection. And we'll see over in chapter 6 that one of the ways we participate symbolically in that is through the act of baptism. Um, but those that is Romans chapter 1 through 4.